0: John chapter 19. Say amen if you're there. John 19. um, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. But while you stand for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to read another text to, uh, to set us up to get us ready for the sermon today. So you don't have to look at your Bibles now. But I want you to listen very carefully. I want you to keep this in mind as we examine John 19. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. It says this. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask you to go before us, speak to your people, make the book live, make us what we are not. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. John chapter 19. Don Carson says the entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. The entire Bible. We could, we could go farther than, than what Dr. Carson says. We, we could say this. All of humanity pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. All of time Everything in the mind of God pivots on that one weekend. Amen. We look at our text today. Look at verse 16, the bottom half of it. It says, So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross. I get the, the picture in my mind of Isaac. Isaac. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. As Abraham takes Isaac, it was Isaac who carried the wood upon his shoulders. Now God's son, his only son, Jesus, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Galgotha also called Calvary this place the skull we don't really know where it's at exactly we know it's outside of the city they don't execute criminals inside the city they go outside the camp Hebrews tells us he was taken outside of the camp that might not mean much to you but do you see outside of the camp where the shame was put upon him. He was brought outside of the camp, outside of the city, at the place of the skull. Why do they call it the place of the skull? Well, two reasons. One reason this mountain, this, this this well, we would call it a hill, this hill looked like it was in the shape of a skull. If you look back from a distance, you would see it looked like a skull, but there was a whole lot of human remains upon this place. This was an inroad to the city. This was an outlet of the city. This was a busy intersection. This was a busy place that people traveled often. And they were reminded of the most horrible, the most despicable, the most shameful act that could be done to another human being. As they went by the place of the skull, no doubt in their mind, it flashed the times that they seen those prisoners taken up and nailed to crosses. If you were a Roman citizen, you weren't allowed to be crucified. You know why? Because it was too shameful. It's here, the place of the skull, where they're bringing Jesus. Notice, he's bearing his own cross, it says, but we know that, that under the weight of that cross, under the weight of what had happened to him, under the weight of the scourging, No doubt by this time, blood loss is extreme. No doubt by this time, decomposition and putrefaction have already started. If you viewed him from the back, there's a possibility that you could see some vital organs. There's a possibility you could see even parts of his intestines. He's a bloody mess. And it's here that he bears his cross. He walks to the hill. He stumbles. Do you remember they're offering him something as he walks though, aren't they? John doesn't tell us. But if we read the other gospels, they're, they're, they're wanting him to, 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 to drink something. They're wanting him to, to take a little something as he goes. And, and what this concoction does, it's a sedative. All oh, beloved. He refuses the sedative. He refuses the one thing that that might help him through this. No, in total reliance on his Father, under the load of the cross, he makes his way up that lonely hill. There they crucified him. It was there where they laid him down cross beam that he had packed up that hill. Now they lay down and they lay him on top of it and they nail him to the tree. Can you imagine the screams from the distance as you're in the marketplace in Jerusalem? The screams as they run spikes through men's hands. It was here that they would take that crossbeam, they would fasten it on the upright post that was already in the ground, and it was there where they hung him. The nailing wasn't over. No, they had something else to nail now. They nailed the feet of the sinless son of God. It was here where they nailed him. The feet that Mary had petted when he was born. The feet that Joseph had counted his toes when he came out. Those feet. The feet that that had walked those dusty streets, teaching those men, love thy neighbor as thyself. It's those feet who walked upon the water. It's those feet who no one would wash in the upper room. And now what do they do? A Roman soldier hammers a nail through those feet. John is the only eyewitness. Matthew, Mark, and Luke is secondhand reports. Still valid, say amen. Still inspired, still God-breathed scripture, still absolutely correct. But it's John. It's John who is actually there watching it all unfold. In my class that I'm taking now, Systematic Theology 2, the professor is trying to teach us how to say what we want to say in in shorter what in shorter paragraphs, shorter sentences. So instead of something taking for a, you know, a long time to to get it out, I'm sure some of you are thinking, I wish he would practice that a little more in the pulpit. But if you take something and condense it down to very, very staccato sentences, just rapid fire almost, just just get to the point and get on with it. That's what John does. John could have wrote a whole book on what he's seen that day. No doubt he could have wrote a book on the anguish that he's seen in, in, his, in his Savior's face. No doubt he could, have, he could have wrote a book on what he felt in his heart, how his mother screamed in the distance, how she fell and fainted and he would grab her and bring her up. No doubt he could, he could write a book on, on some of the things that people said to him as they walked by. But he condenses this down in no matter of verses. Look at verse 18. They crucified him. The crown of thorns on his brow. Nothing more than a shell of a man who 24 hours before was fixing to comfort his disciples. Now nothing left but what looks like raw meat. And he's not alone. He's with two others. One on either side and Jesus between them. These two others more than likely are the two cohorts that were with Barabbas. He's in Barabbas' place. He's where Barabbas should have been. But these two criminals on each side of him, they're with him. No doubt they've cursed and screamed and and wish that death would come. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the, cross, on the cross. And here's what it read. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Notice that he put on there, Jesus of Nazareth. Wasn't it Nathanael who said, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? And what Pilate is doing is making one last dig at these Jews. He's making one last dig at these these, uh, religious folks. Not just the king of the Jews, but he's from Nazareth. Here's your king. Here's the one that you put all your trust in. There's the, the, the one that you esteem so highly, and he is from Nazareth. It's like saying this from Appalachia. I've traveled the world, and every time I go somewhere, they say, Where are you from? And I say, Eastern Kentucky. And then they look at my shoes. You're wearing shoes? Yeah, I'm wearing shoes, you punk. (laughs) And we got hot and cold, and we got the internet, and all those things, too. I'm proud to be from here, aren't you? I say Jesus from Nazareth, as if as if to throw off on where he's from. What they should have said was Jesus from the portals of glory. <laughs> Jesus from before time was Jesus, the creator of Nazareth. <laughs> but they said he says Jesus of Nazareth. He 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 wrote this down. More than likely, Pilate didn't write it down himself. He had someone write it for him. Look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was near the city but outside of the city limits. And it was written in Aramaic. That's the common language of, the, of Judea at the time. That's, that's the common use. But, but not only that, it was written in Latin. That was the, the language of the army. And it was also written in Greek. Greek. That was the language of the complete Roman Empire. So no matter who you were, where you were from, what language you spoke, when you walked by Jesus hanging on the cross, you knew exactly what it said. You knew it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now watch these guys. The chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather... This man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate puts it right back on him. once again, making fun of these guys. Here's what he says. What I've written, I've written. Get over it. I don't work for you. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, when the soldiers had nailed him to the tree, when the soldiers had put him up on there, we stop for a second and we take a brief look over In Luke, write this in the margin of your Bible, Luke chapter 23. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're nailing him to the cross. They're running spikes in his hand. And as they're doing this, they have one guy. He's the the flesh nailer, the the carnific serum. He's the guy that holds the bloody hammer. And he says, as he looks at them, he looks to his father and and he says these words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prays for his enemies. What kind of man is this? That as they're nailing him to the cross, he asks his father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. To forgive the innkeeper that rejected him in Bethlehem. To forgive forgive Herod's army that tried to kill him when he was nothing but a baby. The Pharisees and Sadducees that questioned him and, and haunted him for all his adult life. Forgive the followers that doubted him, the disciples that betrayed him, Pilate who did not defend him, the crowds who demanded his death, the Roman soldiers that beat him, and the man holding the hammer. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the worst crime in history. The most heinous act in all of history. Father, forgive them. You know what that teaches me? There's never been anything done to me that I can't forgive someone for. Because when I when I look at what's been done to me and I read that it is nothing. We hear the words of forgiveness, don't we? Look at verse 23 again. When the soldiers had crucified him, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. So this tells us something. It tells us that there's probably four soldiers here. And they divided his garments into four parts. What's the four parts? One, his sandals. They take his sandals. This was a this was a common thing that the executioners would would kind of get together and take whatever was there. These guys are so cold. These guys are so calloused. These guys have got to the point where this doesn't mean anything. Here is a man gasping for his last breath. Like one of those Olympic, uh, the ring people. You know how they pull herself up and they do all that thing? That's what Jesus had to do. He had to pull himself up by his feet. Push himself up, pull himself up by by the nails just to get a breath. And then he would come back down till his lungs filled up. And then he would come back up gasping for air. And what do these Roman soldiers do? They take his garments and they divide them. It's his sandals. One gets his sandals. One gets his belt. One gets um, the head covering. And, And the other one gets the outer robe. There's four of them here. But then there's one thing left. There's four parts, four soldiers, but actually there's five pieces. Look what it says. They divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless. Tunic um, was, the, the, was the part that was next to his skin. But don't think of it as an undergarment. Think of it as our suit. This was where the, the money was. This was the most important part of, of the dress of the day. You had the tunic and then you had this outer robe over top of the tunic to protect it. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Do you see our problem? We have five pieces and we have four soldiers. So what do they do? So they said to one another, let us not tear it because it's all woven. It's, it's one piece. It's seamless. Let's not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. It reminds me of something. These Roman soldiers only wanted what they could get out of Jesus. All they wanted was just something. And you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of people today. All they wanted was his clothes. All they wanted was that tunic. All they wanted was, give me, give me, give me, give me. They didn't want what was offered on the cross. What they wanted was what they could get. Beloved, don't treat Jesus like the soldiers treated Jesus, Don't take him just so you can have a better life now. Don't don't take him so you can get something now. No, he's offering something far greater than a tunic. He's offering something far greater than wealth. He's offering something far greater than anything you can imagine. He's offering his righteousness for your sin. Look at verse 24 again. They cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This casting lots thing, me and uh, Robert were talking earlier. That's a that's a pretty popular thing in the Bible. They were casting lots to see who's who's going to get it. And guess what? They did this because they were sinners. Say amen. They did this because their hearts were evil. But do you remember what we said at the beginning? Delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Beloved, just because these men were sinners and just because they were, they were committing the worst crime in history does not mean that God wasn't using it exactly the way it was supposed to be used. It makes me sick when I hear people say God can't do this and God can't do that. God is God. That's why they call him God. He can do anything he wants to do. And he can use any means that he wants to use. And look what it says here. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers done these things. The the soldiers done these things because they were wicked. They were getting what they could get. But beloved, the scriptures was being fulfilled the whole time. This was not out of God's control. This was not something that was far out there anywhere. Don't live your life thinking that that God has his will over here and then everything else is going over here and then he's divorced from that and he can't do anything but, but, but make suggestions. God is not a God of suggestions. God is sovereignly in control of all things. I can look back over my life and the sin in my life and the shame in my life, and I now know... That that was absolutely me and my cold heart. But God was working it out for my good and for his glory. It looks bad standing here. If you're standing with these women looking up, you think it's all hope is lost. But all hope is not lost because God is fulfilling the scriptures. God is doing exactly what he always said he would do. What does that teach me, Chris? It teaches me when God tells me something, I can believe it. When He tells me there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, I can believe it. I don't have to worry anymore. When He tells me all those whom He foreknew, He glorified, I know this. Not because of works that I've done, not because of works that I am doing, but because of what He's done. I will see Him as He is one day. I can take you to the bank, beloved. Psalm 22, it tells us all these things that's hap- going to happen. And what happens? It all happens. How does that work? It's God. It's God. That's right. Now look what it says. The soldier's done these things. And then there's a word there. And some of my teacher friends could tell me what that word is. What's that next word? I'll, I'll get you up to speed. Verse 25, the first word. Huh? But. What is that kind of word? I'll tell you, let me, let me give it to you in hillbilly turns. That's a flipping word. That, that takes the conversation and it flips it. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God being rich in mercy. Well, that's what John's doing here. He's, he's giving you this great picture of all this evil stuff that's happened and all these Roman soldiers going after him. He's even giving you the picture of all his disciples leaving him. But look what it says. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. But it's the polar opposite of those soldiers. It's the polar opposite of those chicken men. And let me say this too. I don't talk to women very often from the pulpit, but I'm going to today. The women of this church, I need you. Because oftentimes the women are the ones who have the backbone when their men are chickens. Can I get an amen? Amen. I thought the women would really be up on that one. But do you see? They've all ran, haven't they? They've all ran. Except the women. There's something that's happened before this, though. There's something that's happened between the dividing of the garments and this scene that John paints of, his, of, of these women standing by the cross. What's happened well, as my, my teacher and friend, Hershey Ork, says, God's sovereignty has been on display. Why is that? Luke 23 tells us. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you're under the same sins of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Listen. Listen to what he says. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The demon shuddered to hear him say, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The devil was shaking in his boots to hear him say, Today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because it looks as if it was over. But God was still saving men as he was nailed to a tree. My friend, that is a sovereign God. That at any time, at any place, under any circumstances, he can save a poor, lost soul like me. He looks over at him and he tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Think about this for a second. He never attended Sunday school. He never went to vacation Bible school. He never darkened a pew. He never gave an offering. I'll I'll give you one even better. He was never baptized. But when God said, you're saved, he was saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. How was he saved from the wrath of God, Chris? Because right to his left was the one who was taking the wrath for him. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted that when he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, that kick-started Jesus to do something. No, Jesus in his sovereignty brought him exactly to the place where he needed to be. Where was that place? It was nailed to a cross. Beloved, don't ever think that God would nail his own son to a cross but make you live the life of luxury. He'll do whatever it takes to get you to him. I guarantee you that if you talk to this thief later on, one day you'll see this thief in glory. Say amen. You say, hey, I, I heard about you. And he he would say this, I would go back and live a thousand crucifixions to hear Jesus say to me, today you'll be with me in paradise. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what you've been through. God will see you through. And God is in control. You know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch? Nothing. Nothing. Let me finish with the next, the next couple of verses, and then we'll finish up next week. Amen? I want you to, all week long, I want you to wrestle with the idea that Jesus was nailed to a cross. We've seen these words of forgiveness. We've seen the words from a sovereign God, but, but there's something else. Look what happens. But standing by the cross of Jesus were the mother, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, doesn't that, doesn't that grip your heart? When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home let me say a couple things about this do you remember that that's really one of the last times that we hear of Mary being confronted by Jesus do you remember what that was about she comes to Jesus wanting him to do some things remember and what did he tell her I'm about my father's business it's not my time yet he makes it clear to her you're my mother but you have to be my disciple and now at the cross we see the interaction again and what's the interaction now You've been my disciple. Now be a mother to more disciples. Think of what she felt as she watched her son smothered to death, nailed to a tree. When my kid falls as he's running out playing basketball, as Maggie trips as she's going through the house, I get this awful feeling in my stomach. Do you do that? it's like your your whole stomach falls out of you imagine poor mary she rushes the cross no doubt and they bring her back and she rushes again and she's she's all over the place mary mary the first one to ever carry the gospel mary the one who who loved him and took care of him, who who petted him, who fed him, who worried about him. Listen, just because he's God's son doesn't mean that mommies don't worry. I can hear him now. You got to get this. I'm God. <laughs> you're still my boy. I'll worry about you till you're gone. It was Mary who stood there with those other women. Backbones like a railroad track. Tough as nails. It was Mary who stood there. Who watched her son being nailed to a cross. She went from a mother to a disciple. To a disciple who was the mother of other disciples. You know what? You shouldn't pray to Mary. Mary. No, you don't pray to Mary. you pray to Jesus. He says, "John, you take care of her. And Mother, you take care of John. John would stay with her. He would stay with her till she passed. And it was then and then only would he write his letters and his gospel. After he'd done the business that God had planned for him to do, taking care of Mary, this might have been his aunt, for all we know. I know this. John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even mention his name. This was the same son of thunder who said when this one bunch didn't believe, let's just, let's just throw down fire from heaven and kill him. Now, on the other side of this, after living with Mary all this time, after seeing his Savior nailed to a tree, he says, the disciple whom He loved. He wouldn't even mention his name. He was so humble. That's what the cross does. Beloved, you can't walk out of this room today. You can't walk out of this building today feeling the least bit arrogant when you look at that. Why? Because it's what he's done. All the words of affection for his mommy. what's the big deal? I mean, what's the big deal about hanging a man on a tree and nailing him there? Oh, you see, the wages of sin is death. It's not just a man hanging there. You have to realize it was you and I who should have been there. It was you and I who should have been nailed to a cross. Why do you say that, Chris? Because you and I have broken God's law. You say, well, that's awful, that's awful harsh. That's awful harsh to say that because you, because you made some mistakes, because you because you done some things wrong. Now you deserve death. Well, see, that's where our thinking is flawed. It's who the offense was done to. You see, if you lie to me, if you cheat on me, if you do something wrong to me, you've just done it to me. But when you do it to God, and that's what you do when you break His law, you and I have spit in the face of God And we deserve punishment. I saw you nailed to a tree, gave your life freely for unworthy me. Heaven's angels, you did not call, rescued my soul from Adam's fall. The entire Bible pivots. On one weekend in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, I ask you this question. Have you made it yours? <laughs> I think one thing that we do wrong, maybe, is you know how when, when, we, when we're talking to someone about being saved, we say, accept Jesus as your personal Savior, and that's kind of Christianese talk. Like we've said that so many times, it really, it don't even make any sense to me right now. I know this, that when I look upon this text of Scripture, the question I must ask myself, is that what I'm putting my trust in? Not just to be saved, but to stay saved. because if I'm depending on anything else if I'm depending on how good I'm going to be or how good I am or how hard I'm working everything pivots on that weekend in Jerusalem I ask you today have you made that your own have you saw your sin upon his shoulder and do you believe it This is the gospel. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. What is my only hope in life and in death? My only hope in life and in death is that I'm not my own. But I belong both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How could that be? It's that he hung on a cross and that he died for me. Let's pray. Father, if there's someone here that has not made that their own, if there's someone here, Father, that is struggling, that they believe in you, but they still believe in themselves, I ask you, Father, to speak to their hearts. Teach us, Father, that our only hope is on that one weekend 2,000 years ago.